I love film. When a film is well done, I get to disappear into another world for a couple of hours and come out on the other side, desperately wanting to talk to others about the experience. First, it's getting lost in the story, and I can geek out for hours on the characters and how their journey worked out. And then it's about the technique, how well it was written, how did the performances carry the script through, and how did the filmmakers use the technology available to them to create a new world for the audience to get lost in. Being a techie, I love everything about the process of filmmaking, from the writing to the nitty gritty of how the visuals are created and how the sound comes together to make the experience more real. In 1977, just like millions of others, I saw Star Wars for the first time. My dad and I traveled to Manhattan from Brooklyn to see it in a movie palace called the Lowe's Astor Plaza in Times Square. It was a special experience, not just because my dad and I got the day together to see the movie, but because it was a special movie presented at the height of the technology of the day. The theater had a 70 millimeter projection system and was one of the first to incorporate a new sound technology from a place called Dolby Labs. Star Wars was groundbreaking in many ways. The visual effects were amazing for the time and well used in telling a classic hero story arc. But the single moment in the film that stands out in my memory, even after 45 years, I can still close my eyes and experience the moment in full, was Obi-Wan in the cavern at the center of the Death Star, there to disable the tractor beam so the Millennium Falcon can escape with the princess. And in that moment, the echo of voices of some of the stormtrooper guards starts in the front of this 1,500-seat theater I'm sitting in and echoes past me, ending in the back of the room. Suddenly, I'm not just watching this cavern, I'm inside it. That moment, which transformed the experience, and to be honest, probably my life with it, was the product of not just creative, but technical expertise. I never saw, or for that matter, heard a movie in the same way again. And today, I get to talk to a man whose expertise creates that ability for all of us to escape into other worlds. So where does that expertise come from? Well, when passion meets preparation and practice. Blake is a supervising sound editor re-recording mixer for feature films. He's worked on over 80 features since 1989 and won an Emmy for his work on Behind the Candelabra in 2013. He's been working with filmmaker Steven Soderbergh since the beginning with 29 features and three television seasons, plus multiple films from Victor Nunez, David Gordon Green, and the Duplass brothers. He has written extensively on film sound beginning in 1981 for recording engineer producer, and then in the mix. These writings total over 110 columns and 35 feature articles. Right now, he's working on a book on the digital archiving of motion pictures called Solving the Digital Dilemma. From 2000 to 2016, he owned Swelltone Labs, a post-production sound facility in New Orleans where he lives and works. Larry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jeff. It's my honor. So tell the audience a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, I'm a supervising sound editor and re-recording mixer for movies. Um, the editorial and mixing parts have just joined in the past year at the Academy Awards 
Um, there are two different parts of the art and craft of film sound, or I should say post-production film sound. And uh, there used to be two Oscars for about 25 years, and now they've combined them into one. I both supervise sound editing, do sound editing, and do mixing. Um, okay. uh, and, and more people these days are doing both. It's, it's actually fairly common where 30 years ago when I started, it was, it was not common at all. Is, is that a factor of the change from the more analog tools to the digital tools? It, it, it certainly makes it easier and it makes it more sensible to, 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 to blend the two disciplines. Um, but I mean, I was doing it starting back when I was using multi-track tape. So right. it, it's really more of a, dare I say, pretension alert coming up here, a holistic approach to, uh, to film sound and that it doesn't necessarily have to be two separate groups of people. Got it. Okay. Did you start out with a vision someday of being a sound editor or um, what were you expecting to be when you were a kid or when you? <laughs> well, you know, when, when I first got the movie bug, I uh, newsflash here, I wanted to direct um, because the film that, that caught my attention was Citizen Kane, which is ah. maybe along with 2001, the, the thing that spurred more young people to want to direct movies than any other. Yep. Um, and uh, so I then tried to learn everything I could about the whole thing of filmmaking, uh, focusing really on directing and cinematography. And then uh, whenever I tried to find anything good about film sound, there was nothing. It was either too general, you know, their dialogue, their music and sound effects, <laughs> or it was too technical as in, you know, how to build equipment, which I have never and will never have any interest in. Okay. Um, so I then uh, went to Los Angeles to write a book on the history of film sound. Okay. A project that's still in the works, but um, but in the process I did, I have been writing about film sound since 1981. And for the first seven years, I, I, I worked a little bit in film sound, but I didn't really start mixing movies until 89. And, um, you know, so when I, when I started mixing, it was after many years of writing very, very, uh, how can I say it? Not how to, but how it was done type of articles Okay. for then recording mag, then uh, sound magazine, recording engineer producer. Okay. And, uh, so when I, when I got started doing it, it felt very simple and straightforward to me. Um, and that, that's how I basically made the shift. I didn't go there with the intention of getting into film sound. I was going there just trying to learn about it. Okay. Did you go to film school while you were here? No, ne ne never did. And uh, I went to LSU Baton Rouge for five semesters uh, in the mid seventies. And I flunked out of LSU twice, huh. which is no small achievement. <laughs> and uh, they, there was no film program then. I was studying journalism. Okay. Uh, such as you study journalism, I would never recommend anyone study journalism or filmmaking in a college. You should either study, you know, have a liberal arts degree, have an English degree, have a history degree. Yeah. But anything you're going to learn in journalism school, you're going to learn for fresh anyway when you get to a given newspaper. And, and with respect to filmmaking, especially today, I mean, when I was starting 
it was uh you know super eight double system sound was the thing that was the most powerful tool you had yeah it really is um pleistocene era compared to what kids kids have today yeah but you know i did learn the basics of editing and syncing and negative cutting and things like that and um uh, so i just basically once i found out the second time started making super eight movies and uh and uh that's that's how it began my son first of all is a graduate of journalism school so i completely understand what you're talking about because i think in his life right now all his education has done for him is bring frustration because he sees the standards of what journalism should be based on what he's learned and he doesn't see that in practice based on the particular place that he's working right now he's not working for one of the major news outlets like you know the the la times or associated press but journalism standards slide depending on what particular world of journalism you're living in um and i and i get the filmmaking also because i when i first moved out to la i signed up for the um ucla um uh, film certificate at their extension program uh-huh. took that took classes there for a couple of years and i've always felt that where it was really valuable to me were the here's a specific tool and how it works kind of training rather than, you know, film history. I mean, you either have a, you're either interested in film and you have a vision for it, right? You look at it and you understand the language of it. Um, And that's not the kind of thing that you necessarily pick up in class, I think, and become an artist, right? It's either inside you or it's not. I think the art part is absolutely that. Um, And uh, other than whatever connections you might get, if you go to a proverbial USC, UCLA, or NYU, Mm I don't think that there's any there's any real benefit to it. I mean, you know, in film sound, it's interesting enough. Five of the top fifteen people in the history of film sound went to USC. Mm-hmm. You know, um, certainly three of the top five by any standard did. That's Scary Rides from Ben Burt and Walter Murch. Yeah, um, they're uh, pioneering and insanely talented uh, and insanely good people. All of them too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would get guess, and I, I and I mean Ken Mura, I know was our common teacher. But I would guess that they would probably agree with me that you don't have to go to X Y Z school or whatever, and especially the idea of spending that money. Yeah, I mean journalism is different than filmmaking in a sense that journalism isn't what it was when I was in journalism school. Was right when all the president's men was happening. Yeah, so I was able to go see all the president's men first run being interested in journalism and filmmaking. Um, so that was a, uh, an interesting time. Yeah. But journalism these days has become, you know, its bones have been picked apart yeah. by, by uh, the changes in technology and what it pays now and the respect it gets is nowhere near yeah. what, it, what it should be. But whereas filmmaking, there's, there's a huge the, the num- number of opportunities have increased i think with filmmaking yeah having you know having a uh, 4k film recorder built into your cell phone with fairly reasonable uh, picture quality um has certainly democratized it right i i wouldn't oh, yeah. when i first came out here you know if you wanted to do a real project you had to go you had to go to a place like technicolor and beg them for film for film ends to shoot on it you know and and see if they'd give it to you for free so you had film stock to play with cool. for your student film right now all of that's cool. gone away yeah, 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 yeah. No, it, it, it's, um, I mean, it was so the act of, of 
getting a print made, you know, I used to cut, you know, I wasn't cutting negative, I was cutting reversal original. Yeah. Super 8. And, you know, used to AB roll everything. And working in Super 8 as I did, you, you had to do everything. And even though the tools were very primitive, uh, you, you still got a good basis in the fundamentals of filmmaking. And you knew what a short focal length was going to give you versus a longer one. Yeah. Etc. Not the kids today don't know that too, um, but it was I think a good thing to have to have that pit of your stomach feeling for a week or <laughs> how long it took us to get our, our process reversal originals back to see if there's an image on screen. Yeah. You know? Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. I remember that. I remember that just with still still photography as well. You know, you took those pictures. You always took five of them because you never knew whether or not you were going to get the right one if it was important. Yep. Yeah. So how did your desire to be a director become um, focus on sound? You talk about how there wasn't a lot written about sound. Is that what drew you into it, that you wanted to be the guy to, uh, to focus and bring attention to it? I first got a job in film sound in early 1985 at a, at a, in the sound library of a company, Weddington Productions. And I worked in the library for about uh, two and a half, three years. And I helped design a small studio there. Uh, and all this was based on research I'd done and writing I'd done for the magazine. And then when that small studio was built, um, I just knew you could mix a movie there. And because my colleagues were, were strictly sound editors and they'd been used to going to the big mixing stages, it was sort of abstract to them. But I, I knew based on research I'd done that it was possible. So then lo and behold, uh, a friend of mine who was also a friend of one of the owners of the company, which say Mark Mangini, um, uh, the, the friend of Mark's and mine was doing a low budget movie and he wanted to um, uh, see if we could get a good deal on doing the post sound of the film. And I'd had minimal experience with editing and mixing sound at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of my experience had been in the sound library. And so we did that movie in that movie, the friend of Mark's and mine was Steven Soderbergh, huh. and the film was Slides and Videotape. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was the first movie. I mean, I mixed the movie before that, but really someone else, um, uh, my buddy Dale Strumple, was the real mixer on that. Okay. Um, but but So Sex Lies was my first mix, and it was a real trial by fire. And uh, I think we did pretty well. I mean, yeah. it, 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 you see the Criterion edition of the movie, um, that came out in 2018. Yeah. yeah, that was a special featurette that I did there, which talks about the process of sound and how the history of that film has been over the years. Yeah, and um, and it uh, it really shows how the movie progressed year by year by year. Okay, and um, and so you you really get a chance to see. I really open up the kimono and show people how bad it sounded in my first iteration of the mix, which was for the Sundance Film Festival. Then it was called the U.S. Film Festival. But uh, okay. um, how that for how bad that first mix was and how much has been improved over the years. Uh, so then once I did that movie, I got a real, a real taste for it. And uh, I figured the world needed a possibly good film sound person more than it need a possibly mediocre director there was enough competition there so i just sort of shifted and never looked back very cool what's your favorite movie favorite movie of all time is to kill a mockingbird Uh um i just uh 
I think that movie just fires on all cylinders. There's, it has one of the transcendent film scores of all time. The performances by all the everyone to a person, from uh, from Scout to Atticus to um, you know the sheriff of Macon County. You know everybody is just wonderful in it. Um, and you know you could say, well, it's not a perfect movie because you can see the uh, Santa Monica Mountains behind. Uh, <laughs> We're not quite in uh, in Macon County, Georgia, uh, Alabama. Yeah. Um, but you know, forgiving that that mistake, um, it's it's really just a special movie that I uh, I have to parse it out. I, I saw it about uh, about a couple months ago, and I had last seen it about four years before that, and then before that it, it had been. I don't see it more than every five years. Yeah. Sometimes go 15 years without seeing it because it's a, a little precious gem of emotion. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, I think that the Boo Radley moment in the last, the last few scenes of the movie is, <clears throat> is right up there with the bone cutting to the missile in 2001 as a moment that is uh, just unduplicatable. Okay. So what film then breaking down the tech, the technical bit a little bit as a sound person, which film stands out the most for you as an achievement in sound? Well, as far as sound is concerned, uh, you know, although uh, Skill Mockingbird has some really cool echo in the uh, the second to last scene when Jem and Scott are walking through the uh, the field after the, uh, the the state fair or whatever the, yeah. the the costume thing, you know, yeah, except for some cool echo in the voice there. Um, sound is really not is not really special, mm-hmm. but the good news for us is that there's a lot of special movies with special sound and top of the pops pretty much. And I, and I'm not alone in this sort of like saying revolver is your favorite album yeah. um, is uh, apocalypse now, which has the, uh, which has the uh, interesting um, footnote in my personal history that it was the first mix that I ever attended. Okay. Um, in, uh, in May of 1979, uh, there was a preview screening a week before it went to con at the Bruin Theater in Los Angeles mm-hmm. in Westwood. And there was a benefit screening for uh, the um, Pacific Film Archive. Is that what it's called in Berkeley? Um, and um, we, we stood in line the whole day. I just moved to L.A. three weeks earlier hmm. and stood in line and we got tickets and there was a 7 o'clock screening, which people like Spielberg and Lucas went to. And then there was a 11 o'clock screening where people who got in early in line, like myself, went to. And then there was a yet another screening at 2 a.m. Um, for the movie. And uh, so I saw the 7 o'clock screening and was completely blown away by how good it sounded. Yeah. And um, afterwards... Uh, after that screening, Coppola was out in, out the out front by himself with actually John Milius, the writer, was there, and Gene Siskel, the um, critic, the, 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 the critic was there, yeah. and uh, so I got a chance to witness a very funny exchange between Mr. Coppola and Mr. Siskel. And after Mr. Siskel was finished, I went up to Mr. Coppola and asked him, uh, uh, you know, it's a great great sound amazing movie i'm writing on film sound how can i find out more about it and he said go to san francisco and call walter merch well i did the next day but walter was busy but i did go back 
in the summer, in July, uh, third week of July in 79. And I was at the mixed stage on Pacific Avenue in the uh, North Beach area of San Francisco yeah. for three days while they were final mixing the movie. And it, 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 it put a couple of hooks in me. One was, this was a really cool thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the other one was that uh, this was a, re- this is a cool thing because if you work with a really good group of people, as they clearly had uh, with uh, the three lead mixers, Walter Murch, Richard Beggs, and uh, Mark Berger, plus the whole crew around them, many of whom went on to have stellar careers in film sound. Um, it was just looked like a great thing to do. And the other one was that it was in a really small room. It was like 20 feet wide by 40 feet long, very small ceiling, low ceiling. Yeah. And so it, it made it humane as opposed to the big, you know, purple rooms in Hollywood with uh, with uh, quad eight consoles yeah. in them and with uh, a bunch of cynical old mixers <laughs> who were straight from from Albert Brooks's movie uh, Modern Romance. If you've ever seen yeah. that great scene, yep. Um, and this was the opposite of that. So when so cut to seven years later when we were building this room at Weddington and I was helping design it. I knew you can mix a movie in a small room, mm-hmm. you know, as in, as in the first words of John Lennon's, all you need is love. There's nothing you can do that can't be done. And if you can mix apocalypse in a small room, you can do anything else. Yeah. Um, granted they mix for, for eight months, but that, that aside. Um, so it was, um, it was uh, a real turning point with me. Uh, I mean, I continued to write about sound, uh, focus writing for a couple of years, but, I knew I had seen something that was really special. And to this day, whenever I hear it, it never ceases to amaze me. In the 40th anniversary version that came out uh, two years ago, Yeah, um, I got a chance to hear it again in theaters. And uh, it's it just, there's some stuff in there that is just sort of uh, outlandishly creative. Huh. Where, you know, like Dolong Bridge and, yeah. you know, the helicopter attack on the village. Yeah what the crew called Balair, which is a place in the Philippines where I was shot. But the helicopter attack in a vill- village is the one everyone talks about. But to me, it's like the Kurtz compound and uh, Dolong Bridge. Um, and uh, those those are moments. And I, I was lucky enough when I was there for three days in July of 79, I watched a mix uh, two reels, and one of which was the puppy Sampan reel. Yeah. Um, and the other one was Dolong Bridge. And I, when I see the movie now, I still see the changeover marks <laughs> in the white coming across that were on the black and white print that they were mixing to. Yeah. Um, so, uh, that's cool. Yeah, it's, it's pretty special. I mean, others I can throw at you. Um, uh, Altered States uh, in its original run played in 70 millimeter, like at the, at the Bruin, excuse me, at the Village Theater in Westwood. Yeah. And my buddy Steve Katz did the sound effects on that. And that was a, a, a crazy, amazing experience that is legendary in, in the annals of Hollywood film sound. Um, um, Fight Club is the best sound job of the past 25 years. Uh, Ren, Ren Kleiss for David Fincher. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty... I've only seen it one time. I'm scared to see it again because... It's it makes me want to just quit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you when you're when you're doing the sound mix, 
Do you mix it with certain uh, sound playback systems in mind, like Dolby Atmos versus something else, or is that generic as far as the mix goes? I, I'm just curious. And also, I, go ahead. No, finish. Yeah, yeah let, let, let me go ahead and, and, and go to that because that's an important question. Uh, I, I, in a sense, I do view it as generic, and I view it as 5.1. Uh, and the reason is, is that whether I'm in my small home studio, whether I'm at a bigger mix studio somewhere else, where I'm at a large mix studio somewhere else, or whether I'm at the Goldman Theater at the Academy on Wilshire Boulevard, yeah. um, 5.1 essentially sounds the same. Mm -hmm. 5.1 also falls down directly to an, uh, a two-track mix very straight in a very straightforward manner. And I think that that... that that uh, tool of 5.1 that has been around widely since the early 90s is really creatively the point of diminishing returns. And it really do sort of diminish mm -hmm. because I think when you get to stuff like Atmos, it can have the danger of calling attention to itself very quickly. And then there's a, the issue of, like I was saying about, you know, 5.1 goes from, from small mixed rooms to even to home theaters and to the Goldwyn Theater, um, Atmos at home is Larry Blake. Atmos in a good theater like the Dolby Atmos, Dolby Cinema Theaters at AMC Theaters, yeah. it's like LeBron James. Okay, Larry Blake plays basketball. LeBron James plays basketball. The way I play basketball has nothing to do with the way LeBron James. <laughs> And Dolby Atmos in the home, uh, it's it's a it's it's really a joke, and I and I've never been shy about saying this. Yeah, it really, the idea that that so much emphasis is put on it by, I mean, a lot of the streaming services make it mandatory, and and people talk about future proofing. You future proof something by giving it greater resolution, yeah. and having more speakers is not is not the stuff of resolution. Um, and resolution, either in terms of uh, you know image capture or uh, sampling rate or bit depth or whatever, but right. but but there's only so much you can do there. You can't get any greater, you know, dynamic range than you have now. Yeah, you can't that most because you've got full range on a gazillion speakers, and you can you could fry people's brains if you yeah. wanted to. Um, what so. what I, what I find interesting is. Um, it, it feels like, at least in the home video space, um, sound mixing is changing from, you know, have expecting you to have 11 speakers in your living room to having one sound bar with some kind of spatial audio processor in it that gives you the effect of it being three-dimensional. Um, do, do guys like you go back and master the, the video releases? Uh, later, or do they do some kind of mumbo jumbo taking the work you did for the original theatrical release and making it into something that just falls into uh, the home video release? Yeah, um, the answer is, is, is that some people make a big deal out of making a near field mix, but I think that if you have to spend a lot of time and effort making a near field mix, your, your theatrical mix is probably too damn loud. So that's one point. Uh, the other one is, is that you can't, you know, the idea of people who have those, like you say, those various modes where you have, you can make any, you can make Citizen Kane and Mono sound like it's coming from 30 speakers. Well, I, you can't accommodate for that. So that just is what it is. Yeah. Um, 
Um, but, but, you know, home theater, you really need to just mix within a very specific dynamic range, knowing that the one thing you can piss off someone with sound at the home is that you have a, too wide of a dynamic range. That just is, is, is verboten where people are riding their remotes. Ah, okay. Um, so, um, so you've worked on what, 65 films? What's sixty-five feature films? I, I've yeah, I, I'd say like 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 sixty films, and then I've restored about five other films that I initially didn't mix. There were a whole bunch of movies by the, the director Victor Nunez um, from Florida, um, and I've restored a whole bunch of his movies. I've also gone back and restored my own movies, but I'm I'm, I'm not adding the numbers there. Okay, um, and I've mixed about. 15 feature length documentaries on top of those 65 features. What's your favorite? Do you have a favorite child of the features of, of what you've worked on my work or the movies themselves? Uh, both. How about that? Well, um, my work, there was one movie that very few people saw my buddy, David green, uh, directed called undertow. And David let me loose on, a couple of scenes with some sound design, some abstract sound effects that really helped tell the story. And uh, there's like three scenes in it that I really proud of stuff that I did. Um, and um, so that's one movie I'm proud sound sound job I'm proud of. Um, Traffic is up there not only because it's a superb movie, but it was a first. It was a first big movie i had done one movie prior to this a small movie um but it's the first big movie that i mixed entirely within pro tools uh, uh which is the way i work now mixing in the box okay also uh, using an external audio console and external recorder okay um and that really changed my career direction um because it just you know it, it, it was like going from a typewriter to a word processor now yeah. Is my work any better? Uh, I think it is. Is uh, my sanity? Uh, do I am I more sane? Absolutely. It, it, it allowed me to to live in New Orleans and live and work in New Orleans. I couldn't have done it if I was dealing with a machine room with right. uh, hanging multiple mag units or whatever. That would have would never have happened. I found that uh, the greater application of technology to filmmaking has opened up the potential of so much more creativity simply because you can iterate more and more and more uh, in the same amount of, in, in the same amount or less time than it used to take you to do it once. Right. I worked at, I worked in animation for a long time. And I remember when they first brought computers into animation at Disney, there was this idea that it was going to make it cheaper because you make this big investment up front and you don't need as many people and you don't need all of that. And instead it created what I call the could be better, right? Which is every shot, the second it's finished goes on the CBB list because it could always be better. And they iterate and they iterate and they iterate until somebody is literally standing at the door, pulling it away from them. And you can do amazing, amazing things that way, but it definitely didn't reduce the cost or speed things up. Well, I, but I think in this instance, it actually has the effect of doing both. It, you know, the, the classic, the triangle of quality, fast, cheap, good, pick two. Mm -hmm. I think that mixing in Pro Tools actually does do all three. I think it gives you much more granular control 
over the, the over what you're doing. Um, you don't you you have less redundant work to do. You have a lot of things you don't need to do. Like if I put a, something in my Pro Tools in the sound effects track, it's in the sound effects. Yeah. I don't have to in a normal situation is coming up to Fader 32, and you have to assign that to sound effects. It sounds silly, and it's it's the way movies were mixed for 70 years. Yeah. But the bottom line is is that that's a non-creative thing. And um, the if you did a time and motion ergonomic study, the amount of time that you don't waste is considerable. And then it has an, another advantage, too, is that if you do something right in a temp dub, then you those decisions are saved. Right. Such as if you put a little bit of EQ and a little bit of reverb on the syllable, and you change the reverb program here on for that, blah blah blah. Yeah, that's all saved. Whereas if you have a separate recorder and a separate console and a separate um, sound sources, mm -hmm. uh, then and separate outboard gear with the reverb, the aggregate apparatus of all that is um, it just it's not good now. Yeah, you know the the obvious question, and I'll say absolutely, is you look at my favorite sound jobs, Apocalypse. You know, I, I'll, I've said many times to talking to people about this is that Apocalypse was, was one of the least flexible sound jobs ever because they had to go so many generations to fit a large number of sound effects mm -hmm. into a twenty-four input console mm -hmm. that if they wanted to unwind one sound in a pre-dub if they wanted the loach to go from left rear to left front instead of left rear to to right front yeah if they wanted to change that they would have to stop at the final mix and then put up all the the parts of that helicopter pre-dub move it and then print the super effects pre-dub and print in that change and then take that piece of mag and go back to the final mix Okay. Whereas the way I work now, no matter what I need to do at the final mix, if I am minutes away from hitting stop and having the mix be done, I can do anything. I can do anything right there and then. If I want to make the pan go slower, faster, yeah. whatever I want to do, if I want to put an ADR line in, if I want to lose all these sound effects and add 30 more, that's all a flick of a button. Yeah. Um, but like I said, it, you know, quality is quality. And my favorite sound jobs to a sound job were done in in the dark times, if you will. <laughs> Just like my favorite albums were all made with uh, analog recording equipment and the overdog. Yeah. Not, not, not that, not that I, I think that analog is any better. It's just, it's happened to be, to be what the Beatles had. You think yeah. the Beatles that were working today wouldn't be recording the Pro Tools? Oh, you know they would be. Yeah. Um, but 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 having only four tracks for the majority of their career for like five years, yeah. uh, a little less than five years because halfway through the White Album they went to eight track. But four and a half years from I Want to Hold Your Hand era to um, middle midway through what the White Album, they were on four track decks. Yeah, and they were able to take advantage of the fact that they were they were great players and that they had discipline. It, um, yeah, it took um, it took a higher level of discipline and creativity back in the olden days. I can I can liken a little of this back to 
computer technology as well. I, I started out on the computer side of things as a programmer, and I used to write programs on many computer systems for businesses. And there was a change in the way core technologies worked at one point where you went from having a fixed amount of memory in the machine that was in the core, it was hardware-based, to something called virtual memory, where basically the computer operating system swaps data out of the machine memory and puts it on disk really quickly um, and gives the impression that you have unlimited memory available to you, right? Um, and I remember distinctly writing code on a what was called a VAX at the time, which had the virtual memory, and then having to port it back to a machine that didn't. And it was like, wow, that's not going to work. You have to go back and retool the whole thing and reimagine how it's going to operate because the box you're working in is much smaller. So you have to be more creative in figuring out how to best use that. And there are days when I miss that, right? The idea of disk storage is cheap. So operating systems are gigabytes and gigabytes and gigabytes in size, right? Tens of gigabytes in size because disk storage is cheap. But I remember the days, and you you probably come across it too, where you had a little floppy disk that ran your operating system for your computer, and you had to swap disks in and out in order to get work done, right? And there was a certain amount of better understanding of techniques to be more elegant, for lack of a, a, a better word, to get the work done when you had constraints around it and it wasn't just kind of a free-for-all. Yeah. Um, do you ever go on set? for your work or are you always remote? Sometimes I do. I'm very lucky that, you know, I've done so many movies with with Steven Soderbergh and, and I'm, I know his first unit very well. And uh, I, especially stuff like crowd scenes and things like that, where um, what you're getting is truly unique Mm -hmm. and, and, and uh, and really um, it's very tough to pull from a library. Mm -hmm. Uh, I try to do that. As much as I can, uh, Ocean's Eleven. I was there for many weeks. That's awesome. Traffic for many weeks. Um, uh, Magic Mike. I was there a lot. Um, you have you, you you know when you have crowds, you just cannot pull five hundred women screaming at Channing Tatum's crotch. <laughs> library. That just is not to be fun. <laughs> That's funny. Um, how did the pandemic affect? your work i mean the industry shut down production shut down for a while um how are you impacted by it i was fine actually we were in the middle of restoring some movies of stevens and so i i had a lot of work to do uh that because i have my suit in my home i was actually really really lucky okay. so it had it had no no problem with with me and uh, okay. able to work on my my book on archiving cool how did that become how did that become a book for you so yeah talk about it a little bit yeah um i um i've always my bent has always been one of a pack rat and i've always had a fascination with the act of archiving and on steven's movies i've been steven's sort of unofficial uh archivist since the beginning okay and um I have all the movies we've done. I have all the sound of uh, going back to Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Um, so when we started to do stuff digitally, I was very careful about archiving everything as files. Mm-hmm. We started to mix 
digitally with, um, well, I should say digitally to files with out of sight in 1988. And we started digitally to multi-track with actually with sex lives. Um, so I took it upon myself to make sure that I didn't screw up. And indeed, uh, I can I can give you files. Every file we've ever recorded, I have and I've migrated. And uh, it's uh, it's um, been a point of pride of me. Well, in 19, excuse me, in 2007, the Academy put out a, a publication, Academy Scientific and Technical uh, mm-hmm. uh, Group, put out a uh, paper called The Digital Dilemma, which purported to be about the issues involved in digital archiving, yeah. of which there are many. But it was a completely bass-ackwards look at the thing and saying that if you want to archive, you have to do it to photochemical film, yeah. you have to do it to black and white separations. And um, that's bass-ackwards, you know, as, as the saying goes, let me count the ways. Yeah. Uh, first of all, that doesn't mention sound. Um, second of all, that doesn't mention the fact that that's a very expensive process. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mention the fact that you're, you're, you're finishing it as ones and zeros, unless you're Christopher Nolan, God help me. Huh. Uh, you're, you're, you're finishing it as ones and zeros. Um, and if you're doing that, then you should be preserving the ones and zeros. And people, yeah. make, a, people make a big thing about the act of preserving files. And it's not a problem. I mean, I can just say simply that, you know, uh, it sounds egotistical, but it's just true. It's not bragging if you can do it. And I've been doing it for 25 years. I've been preserving files for 25 years. And I know that I had no special techniques in New Orleans. I had no special equipment. I I just strictly, um, it's to me, I was just using common sense. And as a result, um, uh, we we we've never had any problems. Yeah. And so when I when I read that, the academy, um, my head sort of exploded. And um, and uh, then I've given many talks rebutting their findings. Yeah. Uh, over the years at archiving conferences, and then in 2016, Stephen was about to start the movie Logan Lucky. He and his producers were financing it. And they were um, distributing it too. Stephen formed a distribution company. Okay. Um, so we didn't have a studio to back up things. Now, as I said, I've always done the sound of Stephen's movies. Uh, I have everything, so that's never been an issue. Yeah. But the picture when you shot on film, I mean, I don't have the camera negatives or cut negatives or even final DIs for mo- most of the movies. Right. Um, but you know, I've I've had the sound elements for Stephen's movies. But because on Logan Lucky, we we were going to have to archive everything. Uh, I talked with Steve about how I was going to do it, and he then told me some some now infamous words to me. He said, "You should write a monograph on this." We'll cut to after we finished the movie. I um, thought not beyond the monograph, this needed to be a book, yeah. and then. It grew actually last year, the year of the, the 2020, the, the heavy stuff in the pandemic. Yeah. Um, I wrote the majority of the book and uh, it's now it, in its current form. It's in four parts. The first part is a history of motion picture archiving with emphasis on things like um, nitrate and mm-hmm. 
famous movie archives like the Museum of Modern Art and Cinematheque Francaise and uh, BFI. Yeah. And then and then it talks about the Academy's paper. What's wrong with it? The second the second part of it is about um, why digital archiving works, and I do a deep dive into all the issues, be it LTO, be it uh, cloud storage, yep. and I go into deep uh, a deep look at why all that works, and uh, and again, you know, a large part of it is that I can I can quote stuff that I've done. It's it's not like this isn't a an academic paper where where which exists to quote other people. Yeah, that that's a good thing, but um, that can be a good thing. But it's more often than not, I think, a bad thing because you could be quoting something that's wrong, but just be, be just because you have something in in your uh, footnotes means you're attributing it to someone. But to yeah. me, attribution's nothing if what you're saying is bullshit. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that's the, the, the second part of the book. The third part of the book is the original monograph that Stephen referred to. And that is a deep dive into what we did uh, on Logan Lucky. It goes part by part, exactly how we did it. And then the fourth is really a fourth, fourth part is a continuation of the third but it, it basically takes the point of view that you're finishing a movie. How do you do it? Yeah. And so we're going to have uh, various Excel grids and make it easy for people who are finishing a movie and who don't care about the history of the Museum of Modern Art film, film department. Right. Uh, but they want to know how, you know, suggestions on naming things. And I, and I think that there really need to be an, a standard for 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 archiving movies. Now, now I say that with a very clear and upfront caveat that I have no delusions huh. that, you know, you can say, okay, this is the, this is the, this is the way everything's going to be done. Everybody can do the same thing. Well, no, each studio is going to do its own thing. Right. Each, each independent film really needs it more because it, they're at the mercy of whichever DI facility, whichever sound company right. they use. But it's designed to basically give a uh, a buffet of these are your options. Yeah. And if you don't know, if you don't have a delivery spec in front of you, then if you do this, 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 and this, and you name it like this, yep. and you put it in these folders, then you're going to be way ahead of the game. Yep. And if, if studios could agree on basics there with obviously, you know, uh, some distinctions made between different studios, which is uh, inevitable then you would make it a lot easier. If you're Netflix, you're going to pick up an independent production. Yeah. It's half the way there. Yeah. If, if you're a small independent film and you're going to be picked up by, doesn't matter whom, yeah. it would make it easier there. Um, because I know my friends at major studios, when they talk about, you know, getting an independent film, it's, it's like the wild west. Yeah. You know, they'll get multiple yeah. audio and picture files to say final, 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 final revised, yeah. you know? Yep. Yeah. Oh hell, Jesus. Yeah. No, I um I've lived through it. Um, when we were trying to come up with folder naming standards um, at Disney a long time ago, it was literally a four month argument back and forth, just to come up with a how are we going to make out um, a a disc folder that represents you know production scene shot down to that level, um, yeah. because it becomes almost a religious war. Um, yeah. So having a book like what you're describing come out and become 
something that everybody in the industry can use as a reference of, I'm not telling you how to do it, but these are the things that are important to you so that you should keep them in mind, I think will right. will be really, really valuable. Um, yeah. Because it, it also... It it takes the uh, it takes the load off those individual guys to say nobody knows what they're doing here. I'll do it right. Everybody knows now. There is some ideas for a standard, and that's a great way to go. Yeah, and, and the thing is that you, you're always at the mercy of what I call the guy in the machine room in the middle of the night. Yeah, that's you me. Know, <laughs> you know, no, no. I, I I'm sorry. I, I I'm not talking. Yeah, well, that could be you. Yeah, I'm talking about like if if you're at a DI facility yeah. and you've got. A, this ProRes file. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. If that person is going to make things up and yeah. I think a, a real, yeah. uh, a real um, goal is, uh, there's a word somewhere out there, uh, something I really admire, let me say, is some gentleman whose name I, I have forgotten uh, came up with the naming standard for DCPs. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's pretty much been adopted and it made perfect sense yep. that, that we needed a standard and lo and behold, that's what, that's what we have. And so that this is the way I view that, which is you might not necessarily agree with it, but it makes things a lot easier on everybody. Yeah. If, uh, if, if we, if we all follow this by the same rules. Absolutely. So uh, what do the next six months look like for you? Well, they're really, really busy because um, I'm finishing up one movie for Stephen called Kimmy, okay. um, which is a real, real sound centric movie, I should just say. Um, and uh, we're in the midst of restoring about seven movies that whose rights have reverted to Stephen okay. um, for Stephen. And also so I'm doing restoring seven movies for Warner Brothers that he made for them. And plus a whole bunch of other things uh other miscellaneous projects i'm involved with and then i have to get back to the book which is which has been by the by the side for a long time okay. uh for about a year now and i need to get that out and done and hopefully it will be out and available um by next spring very cool is there anything i can plug for you before we go well it it's the book will be called solving the digital dilemma okay of course based on the academy's following an academy's paper and uh, my, my um, publishing company's name is Manuela Press, M-A-N-U-E-L-L-A -L -L -A Press. Do not yet have uh, a um, website, but we will in, the, in probably in about uh, by the end of the year. And uh, take a look out for the book because uh, I spent a ridiculous amount of money making it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me out of your busy schedule. This was great, Jeff. Thank you. It was a real honor.